I just found out the. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I just found out this evening that uh, today is the day of Earth Hour, which I I didn't know. I don't know people. Are you familiar with that? No, nobody seems to be familiar. <laughs> but apparently, according to the the person who sent me the information, and I checked their website, it's a huge thing across the world. It's the biggest. Uh, uh, expression of a whole bunch of people doing one thing together across the world, except for probably watching the World Cup final. <clears throat> and it involves turning the electricity off for an hour at 8.30pm, partly as a, a kind of, uh, to demonstrate a kind of global uh, recognition of our energy crisis and ecological crisis, and partly as a kind of contemplation on the amount of power and resources we consume kind of constantly and sometimes maybe unthinkingly. And so as just a very small kind of gesture, the idea of being one hour without electricity as that kind of contemplation and contribution. There's some impressive statistics about how much energy is saved in that hour, although it makes the mind boggle about what that means about how much is used for the other 8,600 and something hours of the year. So, uh, you know, large municipal municipalities in different countries, the whole of Sydney is going off, for example, for one whole hour, which I thought was impressive. And uh, the Eiffel Tower is going off. <laughs> Rather smaller gesture, but there we are. <clears throat> and so I thought as some uh, solidarity with that, we could um, not turn the lights off and the mic off for the Dharma talk, but uh, it's okay, it's only 7.30. But when we get to 8, for the last sitting of the evening, we could uh, sit in the dark as a participation in that. And given, given the, that gesture on this day, it's been going for the last three or four years and has grown very much apparently over those few years, I thought to reflect a little bit about um, where we find ourselves in the world about the state of the world, about what we even mean by world. Reflecting on the state of the world we, uh, may be something that we do a lot. We certainly see and hear and read about lots and lots of reflections on the state of the world. We may be very interested, we may be very concerned, we may be very frightened about the state of the world. But a lot of the reflections that we may read or hear or have ourselves aren't necessarily very clear reflections. So I'd like to look at some of the things that colour our reflections of the world and look at what our relationship is to the world. We've been emphasising quite a lot over these days that the world arises... Here, 
And I think that's a very important starting place to recognize that the world arises here. Anything we know directly, anything we experience, any sense that we have of the world arises here. (coughs) Even reading about the world, any idea, and that's what the world is in that moment, is an idea, we read about the world, the idea of the world arises here. The Buddha made that point very clearly. He says this whole existent world arises right here in this very body in this very mind so that's an important starting place when we think about or speak about our relationship to the world or the state of the world we've been looking at how our sense of world is so coloured, dictated even, by what we bring to our perception in the moment. If we look out through a fearful heart, fearful mind, we feel fearful, we see things that seem uh, fearful. We see what seems to be causes for fear. If we look out with a a chaotic mind, we seem to see a world that reflects that chaos. If we look out through a peaceful (coughs) mind, we seem to see that peace reflected back at us. And you can notice yourself in the moments you've been here how your sense of the world i.e. what's arising within and around you moment by moment, can change drastically from one moment to another. How the world of meditation, which we've called life under the microscope, can turn from being a world of dread, a world of pain, a world of endless dragging time to the next meditation bell. And with some clear seeing, some shift of perspective, suddenly become a spacious world, an expansive world, a peaceful world. So that hearness of the world is very important in our exploration. There's some similarities when we say world, to what the Buddha meant when he said world. Similarities in the immediacy of it, in the here that it arises. But there's also some important differences. And I can't uh, quite imagine what the sense of world in the outer sense was two and a half thousand years ago in Asia. I can't, I don't really, I don't know where the sense of the world stopped. But I do know that there's no way that they had any picture in their mind at that time of a blue-green orb with clouds around it. That picture that's kind of absolutely automatic for us with the idea of world. 
That's a very new thing for in human consciousness. When was that picture taken? 61, maybe? 1961? The first time we kind of left the planet and were able to look at it. And so now it's kind of automatic that our sense of the world is as, a gl- as, is as this kind of the biosphere, this, this green and blue ball in space. And there's something quite unique and quite exciting, I think, about that. That we have a, a global, literally a global sense of world. We know when we say world that it, that includes all the peoples of the world, everyone on this planet, all six billion of us. We know that it includes all the various creatures on this planet. We know that it includes all the plant life on this planet. We know that it includes the delicate, fragile ecosystem of this planet. We know what's happening to the fragile ecosystem of this planet. Or at least, even if we don't know exactly, we've got some idea that some not very healthy things for our survival are happening to that biosphere. That's new. That level of understanding of what world is, is very, very new. How many? 50 years, which is like a you know, minuscule blink of an eye in human history. So there's, there's uh, that new sense of what world is also implies, I think, a new kind of responsibility with what we mean by our response to the world our meeting with the world, our relationship with the world. The Buddha talked about the three poisons of greed, hatred and delusion, which we've also been exploring in those pulls, those inner pulls of demand, compulsive movement towards, which the Buddha called greed, of defense, that resistant move against, that the Buddha called hatred, and (coughs) distraction, that kind of lost, vague, going unconscious, that the Buddha called delusion. And as our, our sense of world has got increasingly large and increasingly interconnected. Not in the the profound sense of that term, in which everything's fundamentally connected, whether we have a picture of a globe or not, but in terms of our recognition of that kind of connection. The recognition not born on some spi- of some spiritual understanding, but the recognition that... Uh, Anyone with a a fairly basic level of education, certainly anyone with the level of education that any of us have, understands something about what that means to live in an interconnected world. So, in a practice like this, in a place like this, we've been looking at the reactions of our heart, the demanding the defensive and the distracted. 
reactions. The way greed, hatred and delusion plays out in our heart. But when we start to look at this interconnected world, as we've explored before, the world is a reflection of the minds that make it. Our human world, our constructed world, our cultural world. So we see greed, hatred and delusion playing themselves out in the world as the poisons, as the enemies of freedom. And this is important, this link between what we call self and what we call world, as seeing exactly the same movements. When we look closely at our inner life, we see those pulls that pull us off course, that inhibit our freedom, that, that shut things down, so that our sense of ourselves or our sense of the world gets defined by that greedy movement. Our sense of spaciousness, our sense of possibility, our sense of immediacy, our sense of this vibrant aliveness that animates our being is lost in I want. And the world gets reduced to the object of wanting. I want that. I've got to have that. And the strategies to get it and the justifications for it and then the, you know, the endless move from one want to another. So we've been exploring that in, a, in the microcosm of our own hearts and minds and lives. And when we look out and this global, interconnected, complex world, we also see greed, hatred and delusion playing itself out. The coming together of all these inner pushes and pulls in human hearts and minds. And as our world has got more complex, it seems like the, the mechanisms of greed, hatred and delusion have gotten more complex. Of course they would. To the point that we can actually see those things quite clearly institutionalized. The whole consumer culture, in many ways, the whole model of economic growth is built on the institutionalization of greed. Our whole military complex, tragically, unfortunately, but almost undeniably, when we look at what's perpetuated in the name of military is built on hatred and it seems like our kind of global media institutions are the embodiment of delusion <laughs> and then there's these two sort of institutional bodies that are supposed to guide us through that Politics and religion. Politics that's supposed to be our kind of secular guide through life. The organizing framework, the guardians of, uh, of managing 
a life that's supposed to be fair and just and keep order and provide kind of safety and uh, holding for everyday life. And religion, that's supposedly the guardian of our moral, ethical uh, and inner life and guidance. And yet, even though as individuals we may have some degree of faith in one or other of those institutions, generally in our culture they seem to be increasingly irrelevant. Politics seems to be increasingly powerless in the face of these big three institutions of greed, hatred and delusion. And religion seems to be increasingly discarded. The endless uh, kind of coming to light of more and more and more and more sexual scandals within the Catholic Church, which has been going on as even more lively than usual the last week while you've all been here on retreat, seems to seems just another symptom of rendering at least the Catholic Church and, and to some extent institutionalized religion in general as as less as having less and less credibility it seems. Less and less people seem to feel able to trust religion with guiding one's inner life. So how do we meet the world in the face of all that? It's also true in terms of the compl- the complexifying, is that a word even? I don't know. <laughs> of the greater and greater complexity of our world that there's a, there's a new kind, I think, of individual power in the world. And the internet, for example, represents a new kind of power and a kind of true democracy. It might be hard, I think it's probably harder for older people, I don't wish to be ageist, but if you haven't grown up with the internet, it can seem just like a strange thing that people use to send emails and or read newspapers or play games. But to people in their 20s, or so, or at least, or people who have either grown up with the internet or have really kind of invested in it, it represents an extraordinary power for people to be connected with one another and for movements to arise that can very quickly have a, the kind of gro- global spread that has only been the providence previously of media, military and corporations. It's been impossible until 10 years ago, really, for individuals within a few days sometimes to have that kind of um, outreach into the world for so many people to be connected to what people others are doing. And this Earth Hour is an example of that. That somebody's good idea 
And that's how this Earth Hour started. I just read a little bit about it. Somebody's good idea can spread and spread and become part of a global movement, having global momentum in quite a short time. So though we might look at these, what I'm calling the institutionalized powers of greed, hatred and delusion that might seem daunting, at the same time the power of the individual has become pretty daunting as well. The power to be touched then by the actions of some individuals who through, one might think of the Dalai Lama for example, who you know, any previous Dalai Lama would have been known to a very, very tiny proportion of the world. Tibet, very tiny proportion of the world. And yet uh, the capacity for his teachings, wisdom, compassion, the kind of the blessings of his life, the, the humility, many of these wonderful qualities that have been able to touch so many people. So I think in our exploration of our relationship to the world, both those sides are important. The complexity of the world, the kind of institutionalization of the world, and the globalization of the world, which means that what we mean when we say my relationship to the world is significantly different and more complex than at any previous time in history for any previous generation in any previous culture. And yet our sense of possibility in terms of world, our movement into the world, our relationship into the world also has a much vaster scope than it ever has before. One can see that just in terms of wisdom teachings, for example. And certainly just in terms of the Buddhist tradition. Historically, over the last 2,500 years, and the way Dharma teachings have developed in different cultures, people have only really had access to their own tradition. They've had maybe access to one teacher who would have been the teacher living nearest to them. If they'd been really keen, they could have gone to see the teacher, you know, next next door but one, as it were, next. And occasionally, even maybe once in a lifetime, going on some long pilgrimage to a far-flung corner of the country, or maybe even a neighbouring country, maybe getting teachings on the way, and then we look at our access to wisdom teachings, which is phenomenal, unbound by country, unbound by language, because so much is translated, unbound by uh, needing to travel, unbound by even needing to leave our home. You You could stay at home and 
plug into the internet and find a vast resource of wisdom teachings. So, me and the world, how do I respond to the world? There's two important pieces, I think. And one is, again, I just want to point to the importance that we've been exploring the world as that which is here. We've been exploring the fundamental quality of space, wherein self and world are very clumsy, partial, deceptive distinctions. But for the sake of having to speak about it, we'll nevertheless use these two terms, but uh, hopefully without falling into the trap of seeing them in that rather clumsy, separate way. First thing is to look at our propensity for negativity. We seem to, our sense of ourself, and of course, therefore, our sense of the world, seems to crystallize around negativity. Seems to be defined by negativity. All manner of, all different kinds of flavors and varieties of negativity. A friend who's also a, a long-term Dharma practitioner, but also a neurologist, was saying they can, they can track in the brain how the chemical kind of impact of negative experience seems to impact the brain about five times more strongly than the impact of a positive experience or a pleasant experience, which is pretty interesting. We seem to have a propensity to uh, kind of embed negativity. It's one of the reasons why when, as some of you have been doing during the days, reporting some kind of blessed, graceful experience of freedom, of ease, of release, of a kind of... uh, Intimacy with what's happening. Of a kind of delicate quality of appreciation, for example. That I've really been encouraging you to kind of bathe in it. To let it flood your system. It's kind of to compensate for all the other stuff which seems to impact five times more strongly. To let yourself really, really soak in the moments of goodness, of beauty, of depth. Those moments where we know we're seeing something more truthfully, more clearly, more freely, more authentically than usual. But this (coughs) propensity to crystallize in terms of a sense of identity of who I am around negativity is really an important one. 
how easily we we think of ourselves in terms of what's wrong. What's wrong with me? My problems, my issues, my stories, my past, my relationships, my struggles, my issues, my practice. All of that seems to most easily get flavoured by what's wrong with those things. So wrong that we feel we need to come somewhere like this to try and sort it all out. And then we get here and we spend a chunk of the time noticing what seems to be wrong. What seems to be wrong with his body? What seems to be wrong with mind? What seems to be wrong with the feelings? We easily put that outside. What seems to be wrong with the one next to me and the one behind me and the one in the lunch queue and the guy up front, especially? That's important to notice that that's a tendency of our mind is to highlight the negative. And going along with that then easily some sense of there being something wrong with that, some sense of lack, something missing, something that I need to get or have or do or become or change. Here we are in a kind of the surroundings, we're in a field of blessings. There's no denying it. Warm, comfortable, safe, an environment of care where people are really putting a lot of time and effort into taking care of us. We're well fed, we're well clothed. And beyond all the material blessings that many, 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 but like that the, the majority of people on this planet can't take for granted in anything like the way we can. Beyond these material blessings, we've got the opportunity and the time to explore our life. A context where we're, being, we're encouraging ourselves, we're being reminded to, and we're supporting each other in Meeting ourselves gently, coming tenderly to our life, noticing what's in there, giving the time and the space and the care and the attention to kind of listen to our inner life and its movements. It's undeniably a field of blessings. And yet we might reflect on how many moments of the week we've been experiencing it in that way. How many moments where there seemed to be nothing lacking, nothing needed, nothing to get rid of, nothing to seek, nothing to change, nothing to manipulate, nothing to modify, nothing lacking. And we might contrast that with how many moments there has seemed to be something wrong, something lacking, something needed, something I have to tweak or radically shift in some way. 
we t- seem to orientate towards ourselves uh, around the idea that something's wrong. Partly that's an intuition of that we recognize the possibility of a way of being that isn't wrong, a way of being that doesn't, isn't characterized by lack. We intuit it strongly enough, we know strongly enough that we're prepared to come to an environment like this for a week and you know, do this hard work of facing ourselves rather nakedly, what sometimes can feel like rather brutally. Because something in us knows there's a way of being free of lack, free of wrongness, free of the need to define ourselves in, negative, in terms of negativity, missing, lacking, needing modification. And... Importantly, important to see that that same tendency we put on what we call the world. So we look around us and we see and we read and we hear and we reflect on the state of the world. And in this globalised and complex world, where for the first time, like we've been exploring, there's a degree of connection with the whole world that's never been there before. The problems that the world faces are everyone's problems. That's also new. And we know things about the kind of fragility of the ecosystem and the fragility of our human culture, our dependency on oil and energy resources that are running out, our dependency on water that's becoming more and more scarce, the kind of conflicts and struggles that go on around resources. And uh, for those of you who are interested and, and kind of follow all of that, there's some, you know, there's lots of intense maneuvering, political maneuvering and military maneuvering to gain control of resources and minerals and water. And that needs our attention. But first stop then is to notice this tendency towards negativity, towards something wrong. And not to underestimate the way that can be colouring our perceptions. If we go back a few generations, we find to our parents or grandparents, depending on how old we are, and the threat of Hitler, Nazis taking over the world. It seemed like, a couple of generations ago, that the world as we know it is in grave danger. And this is the important bit, the world as we know it. We've just been exploring how the world as we know it is substantially different 
to the world as we know it has been for different generations. But the key piece, the piece that's always the same for every generation, is some strong sense of the world as we know it. How that shows up objectively changes. But the sense of there being a world as we know it is always there. And it seems to be that the world as we know it is always under threat. Nazis seem to threaten the world as we know it. And then there was the Cold War. And nuclear weapons and the possibility that at some point, those of you who were born before the mid-70s will really remember growing up with that sense that at any moment there could be a four-minute warning. We grew up with instructions of how to seal the doors and hide under the table. Utterly ineffective, but it was <laughs> clear instructions on the TV of what to do in the case. And at any moment, the sirens could go and there would be a four-minute warning before nuclear meltdown. The world as we know it seemed to be under imminent threat of annihilation. Acid rain was another one. We don't hear anything about acid rain anymore. I don't know what happened to acid rain. <laughs> but the world as we know it was seemed to be about to be, you know, the, the world, the forests of the world were about to be wiped out through acid rain. Etc., etc. And so now here we are with the world as we know it under threat. And it's not to dismiss the reality of our ecological crisis and our resources crisis. But what's going on in our relationship that is basically the sense of fear and negativity around the world as we know it? There's a a human propensity to feel there's always a sword of Damocles hanging over things. And of course there is. It's called death. We call it Hitler, acid rain, nuclear weapons, ecological situation, all of which are real, right? And yet there's something going on in the fearful relationship that's a constant, regardless of how the external situations change. We can always find some sense that the world as we know it is under threat, because it is. This world... The world that arises here in its immediacy is about to end. I say about to. I'm not quite sure of the time scale. But basically about to. It could be a few moments. It could be a few weeks. It could be a few years. It could be, at the outside, a few decades. There's a wonderful Zen reflection designed to wake us up to this. It says, death is most certain. The time of death is most uncertain. What should I do? What should I do?
the one thing that we seem to be, that we can be sure about in our relationship to the world and if we come in from our fear come in from the complexity of the situation come in from from uh, all the complexities to this sense of here we are and here's the world here's the world arising as sights and sounds and tastes and impressions and memories and ideas and fears here's the world here i am here it is all arising together what am i asked to do what should i do says this sen reflection one thing that seems undeniable is that we're asked to respond we have no choice but to respond that's what we're doing in every moment of consciousness we're responding to this participation in life we're responding to what seems to be initially a meeting between me and the world not just a meeting but a kind of butting up against and the more rigidly i experience a sense of me the more rigidly i experience a sense of world the more kind of a uh, crunchy that uh, it's not quite the right word the more painful the more impactful the more rigid that meeting seems to be and as we've been exploring the more we recognize the space around things the more we make space for what's happening the more fluid the more intimate that meeting seems to be so what is an authentic response to life what's an authentic relationship with the world over these days we've been focusing more on what we could say it's the same thing really but what we've been calling maybe an authentic relationship with ourselves and in many different touching and beautiful and uh, liberating ways you've been reporting what a difference it makes to make room for what's happening to soften around what's happening this kind of kindly attention allowing attention generous attention makes all the difference to our habits to our tendency to negativity to the patterns of our mind that seem to want to criticize and castigate and blame ourselves to all the tendencies to shut down to go down these tunnels of mind we've been exploring where everything else gets lost and we get caught up in these rigid ideas what makes a difference to all of that a liberating difference is this willingness to look closely to give care and attention open caring generous attention and things start to move things start to free up our sense a 
of our participation in life starts to really transform. We've been calling that a way to relate authentically to ourselves. We've been calling that a way to unburden the heart. But it's no different to call it a way to relate to the world, a way to free the world. How do I respond in a way that's authentically friendly, open, generous and expansive to the world? So I've got enough troubles just managing this, uh, this heart and mind and, and job and partner and house and rent and, uh, you know, don't, don't give me the world to take on. When the Buddha talked about how to meet the world as a practice of liberation, the most foundational element that he spoke about, prior to anything else, way prior to meditation practice, as what he called a foundation for happiness, was this quality of openness that we've been exploring in our meditation. The practice of giving generous attention. In Pali it's called dana. The practice of generosity as a foundation for happiness. The, pra- the giving of generous atten- attention as a foundation for freeing our relationship with the world and for freeing the world. We tend... As I've been saying, we tend to define ourselves by negativity. We tend to define ourselves by lack. One of the most significant, complete shifts in how we experience the world can happen by consciously changing that orientation to the willingness to give. To focus not on what I don't have, on the lack, on the negativity, but to focus on my capacity to give support to life. We've got so much to give. And sometimes the tragedy of our situation is that we can't see that. We might even think, well, I haven't got so much. What, what can I give? So that's worth finding out. What can you give? of the different resources that we have. What resources do we have? Our time, our care, our energy, our attention, our knowledge, our money, to name a few. Look at this. This alive body, this animated being, this is a hell of a resource. Death is most certain. The time of death is most uncertain. What should I do? How can I meet life? 
what might life start to look like and how might life start how might the world start to transform if i meet it with generous attention if i meet people with generous attention if i meet situations with generous attention if i really am mindful of the tendency to feel a lack to feel negativity and i counteract that by looking for the ways in which i'm buoyant held by life look here's life holding me up supporting me to be here to the degree we sense life's holding us to that degree we feel sufficient a sense of sufficiency to that degree we can trust life oh look even when i relax life's still holding me up here's the world supporting me to be suddenly my response to the world doesn't seem so problematic it seems more um obvious to the degree i feel the world supporting me to that degree naturally i feel a kind of symbiotic relationship with it wanting to support the world Buddhist practice at least in this form we've been doing it isn't a very esoteric practice. It's kind of the mucky old work of looking at our lives moment by moment. Heart like this, body like this, mind like this. But there is a deeply esoteric aspect to this practice. and it's called meeting the world with a generous heart when we respond to life from a place of knowing our buoyancy the fact that life's holding us up and feeling able to respond to that i can't begin to describe what happens but maybe that's just as well because i wouldn't want you to take my word for it we're in a field of blessings yes here at gaia house but it's much wider field than that to sidestep our negativity to open our heart to receive the blessings of our life allows us to meet the world where's the world again oh here the world arises here heart arises here thought arises here the need arises here 
And the response arises here. Don't rely on the institutionalization of greed and hatred and delusion to change the world. Death is most certain. Our own death, certainly. But if we start to look at some of the scary kind of ecological stuff, that sword of Damocles maybe for the first time really is hanging over us as a species and maybe many other species. The time of death is most uncertain. What can I do? If I can see beyond my negativity, see beyond the sense of lack, see beyond the petty, see beyond the pulls and pushes of demands and defences and distractions... Here's the world. Here's my participation in it. Here's my opportunity. And this, mo- this world, this participation, this opportunity is alive in every moment for us. What shall we do? We began this retreat with a sense of pregnancy. Pregnant with possibility. And here we are on the last evening. Also pregnant with possibility. So there's 15 minutes or so for some walking or sitting, some quiet reflection maybe, and then we'll have a last short sitting of the day in the dark together. A way of being in solidarity with the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.